Welcome to the Mormons and Drugs podcast, a weekly podcast wherein I discuss the shockingly frequent intersections of Mormonism, magic, and drugs. Shocking. Shocking. I am Cody, the prep cook, history fan, ranty host. No, 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 Coney. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Joining me is the uh, co-host and producer extraordinaire, Moth Dula. It's extraordinary. Mm-hmm. It's, it's early. We're recording early. Being responsible. um a very quick review as we've discussed the smith family in depth and how their 19th century christian occultist worldview helped shape the impressionable young joseph smith jr the alleged prophet and founder of the mormon religion we discussed joe the teenage witch summoning treasure guardians uh, that he later retconned into angelic messengers uh, got into joe's man magical mentors and subsequent antics as a fledgling sorcerer, which eventually led to his 1826 arrest for said behaviors. Uh, Joseph married his wife, Emma. He gained access to the gold Bible. His uh, former money digging companions quickly catch wind of this and uh, they try and take back the plates as theirs because they felt they owned an equal portion of it. If it existed at all um, as mentioned these highly prized plates were probably no more than a masonry brick with attached sheets of hammered tin but uh that's my own speculation but they helped but they helped yes (laughs) sort of like sideshow uh circus get up yeah uh in our last episode joseph meets his the con artist's wet dream that is martin (laughs) harris um (laughs) You know, the uh, Jesus as a deer seeing oh, guy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Joe uh, beautifully pivots through some of Harris's more major fumbles, uh, including the the lost 116 pages uh, of the then completed manuscript. And the authorizing of the hieroglyphs. Oh, yeah. And he went, yeah, he went to the college professors yeah. and uh, fucked pivot that up that- too. Pivot that very well. Yep, that was a brava. It was an Isaiah prophecy fulfilled. Mm. Not, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Not you fucking up. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So uh, God being angry with Joe for going <laughs> against his better intuition and subsequently allowing the 116 pages of the manuscript to become lost, conveniently took away his ability to translate for a season. This kind of coincided with Emma being really pissed at him and uh, losing her their first child. So maybe he. Oh, just... that's right. She lost their baby Mm -hmm. and then like that same month he requested that he get the manuscript yeah and then so this is things are getting a little crazy and emma is uh, emma almost died giving birth so she's like down for the count and she's grieving so uh (laughs) it's convenient that uh god takes away his ability to translate for Mm -hmm. a season Mm -hmm. so they can kind of regroup this is my own editorial side note but i can't help but think the uh, very upset Emma demanding that he cool his shit down for a while and get his collective shit together was probably what really uh, what? what really set all that off. Well, well, isn't every woman a man's god? <laughs> uh, this should be. Yeah. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, so on that ever important date of September 22nd. Uh, This time in 1828, Joe regains his ability to interpret, though uh, the magic spectacles and the accompanying breastplate are apparently not. 
the angel took those away and mm. we never see them again. Okay. At least not physically so. At least not physically so. As we're about to see, some people do see them, but in a state of vision. Okay. Uh, one unexplored aspect of this annual dating for receiving important occult keys to otherworldly visions, uh, while astrologically significant, the magic mushroom aspect of this hypothesis is worth mentioning here as well. Um, I don't believe I've gotten into this in depth yet, uh, but many psychedelic varieties become available every year after the first heavy showers of fall. And in fact, uh, during most of the preceding years, including this one in 1828, heavy showers were reported just days before, making this the perfect time to harvest magic mushrooms uh, that would allow one to prophesy or uh, receive an ancient book of so-called wisdom. Uh, just something to contemplate on is not only is this an astrologically significant uh, uh, date uh, around the equinox, but it, it's also a really good time to pick mushrooms. Mm. So, no hard evidence, but it does strike me as the perfect time and place for rural Farmville, New York, to find psychoactive mushrooms. While Joe gets the ability to interpret returned, he, however, does not seem to resume translation until the following spring of 1829. So, in March of 1829, Harris returns to the area as uh, Joe's scribe. Clearly, they mended things. And although apparently a bit more skeptical than before, the whole New York... 116 pages debacle that is understandably uh harris continues asking smith for verifiable proof uh, that he isn't being duped but joseph almost laughably pivots pivots and pivots uh as i guess isaac hale recorded quote then this is a uh, joseph's father-in-law mind you this oh, is no, not just sorry. like a, a bad source um quote martin harris informed me that he must have a greater witness and said that he had talked with joseph about it Joseph informed him that he could not or durst not show him the plates, but that he, Joseph, would go into the woods where the book of plates was, and that after he came back, Harris should follow his tracks in the snow and find the book and examine it for himself. Oh. Harris informed me afterwards that he followed Smith's directions and could not find the plates and was still dissatisfied. This is a funny little, like, Joe trying to con God <laughs> so that the guy he's conning can... See the, yeah, I, this is how I'm going to trick God. Well, it's a it, follow my tracks, and I'm sure his tracks were probably in all different directions. Well, it strikes me as something uh, that could easily be one of Joe's little mini cons where he's like, Oh, it, you fucked up the operation. Mm -hmm. It goes mm -hmm. back to that old occult thing. Like, so one of the diggers fucked it up. They coughed or they sneezed, and mm -hmm. that's why we can't get the treasure. Mm -hmm. We were almost there, you guys. Mm -hmm. It seems like an extension of one of those moments. Oh, yeah. Back to the Hale quote, quote, The next day after this happened, I went to the house where Joseph Smith Jr. lived and where he and Harris were engaged in their translation of the book. Each of them had written a piece of paper which they were comparing, and some of the words were, My servant seeketh a greater witness, but no greater witness can be given him. There was also something said about three that were to see this thing, meaning, I suppose, the book of plates, and that if the three did not go exactly according to orders, the things would be taken from them. So again, we're back to that uh, old money digging tricks. So shockingly, Harris continues working with Smith, <laughs> despite, uh, <laughs> despite yet another failed uh, uh, attempt at proof. One of Joe's old treasure digging neighbors once said of the plates and Martin Harris, quote, he had an old glass box. Uh, meaning a, a box used for holding plates or panes of glass. Yeah, you talked about um, that. 
uh, with a tile in it, about seven by eight inches, and that was the gold plates. And Martin Harris didn't know a gold plate from a brick at the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, poor Harris. <laughs> Essentially, everyone in town could see what was happening because they'd been working around Smith for almost a decade at that point mm-hmm. and watched him go through the court trial. Multiple people handled these so-called plates in the sideshow act of feeling a wrapped object inside a box uh, where visual inspection was impossible. Mm -hmm. And they'd lived around and worked near Smith at this point long enough to see this soap opera uh, for exactly what it was. And it seems like everyone kind of enjoyed watching the nonsense play out. Like nobody really wanted to stop it. They were just like, there's nothing really better going on. Yeah. Joe's we've up already, to his old yeah, tricks. We've already taken him to court about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, We're not going to buy this thing, right? They've, they've, <laughs> everybody, they, I haven't got to it yet, but they do institute a boycott on the Book of Mormon. The moment everybody's like, oh, he's publishing this shit now? No, so we're n- none of us are going to buy this, right? Yeah. And they... <laughs> every, I grew up hearing that like from the get-go, Joseph was just persecuted. Like it, He talked about God and was this pious young teenager mm-hmm. that never did anything wrong, yeah. and everyone just hated him because of his beliefs and then contextually you add all this in and it's like oh no they all saw him for exactly what he was and from the moment they saw he could do real damage to people like religiously and spiritually and financially they're like we can't we can't just let this happen but they did anyways joe tells martin that he cannot see the plates alone as in the quote from hale uh, three men would be required coincidentally but not totally Wait, so three men had to be present to see the plates with their naked eye? Yes. Okay. But they don't. But of course not, because <laughs> I, I thought your face was going to melt off. It and it would, yes. So we're we're going to we're going to get into how these men saw the plates and how visionary versus physical it was because okay. they were pretty explicit about it. Okay. Cool. Coincidentally, but totally not coincidentally in any way, these two men show up less than a month later. Um, that being Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer, both of whom are longtime treasure digging men in the area, and Cowdery even being a distant cousin to Smith. Okay. Uh, remember that that incident, the wood scrape, where all those diviners lined up waiting yeah, for the end of I the world, would, and yes. the militia came out and in shot at him. In the very beginning, with his father, senior Cowdery's dad okay. and Smith's dad were old oh, treasure digging buddies. Yes, and it's just like. He needs three witnesses. He has one guy on the line that's the financial backer. He needs two people to back him up that that are sympathetic to his cause. And lo and behold, David Whitmer, Oliver Cowdery show up. Got it. Well, Um, they're sons. Totally by accident. It's the sons, right? Mm Mm-hmm. These are the sons. So each of of these men had sons. And so now all three, because you did say that in in the very beginning. And the Whitmers, as we talked about last week in Ephrata, Mm -hmm. not only were treasure digging guys, but they lived four miles from that shit going on in Ephrata. And so, you said they were a German descendants. Mm-hmm, they spoke with a German accent. They okay. were they were natural German speakers. Okay, um, and they were fluent in English, but I mean, they were obviously conversing with their neighbors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so again, no coincidence. Yeah. But if you read the ch- the official church accounts of this history, which is not really history so much as propaganda, this is all just like by miraculous circumstance. Was um, there a lot? There was a lot of German immigrants in the area, though, right? Also? Yeah, okay. uh, like Germantown, Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania was um, originally a German colony. Okay. So, also, uh, I should also remind you that the Cowdery family, 
uh, a family of educated men and women, many of whom went on in life to become doctors, were also a family of skilled and well-read occultists who were... What do you mean, doctor? Uh, well, this is 19th century doctors. No, that's why so, I'm asking. Um, you're not going to school necessarily, but you're a, a well-read and educated person who's at least like worked with a doctor enough okay. that you can start practicing medicine. Okay. Often not the best practices. Right. They're all self-proclaimed doctors still, yes. though. Okay. Uh, this is still the time where like you might... You might as often get a doctor who prescribes you mercury as something that would actually work. Yeah, okay. Um, Just want to make sure that that's what's... And none of these guys seem to be total quack doctors. Okay. Um, they all have an appreciation, because they're occultists, they have yeah. an appreciation for plant medicines. Right, okay. And um, especially like alcohol-based tinctures were big at the time uh, in lieu of mercury because mm-hmm. some people knew it wasn't good for you. Not everyone did. No. Uh, but it seems like the Cowdries especially were like some of the better kind of country doctors. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. Okay. So in walk these two gentlemen, totally at random. That wasn't random at all. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and these guys help finish the translation process. And Okay. Um, so they were the guys scribing and writing down as he looked in the hat? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the official story is Cowdery was boarding with the Smith family, and remember Joe and Emma are, um, in the Hales. In, in with the Hales, yeah. and Cowdery le- and Whitmer learn about the plates and everything, and they go visit Joseph. Okay, and uh, Cowdery was apparently visiting the Smiths as like a uh, traveling school teacher, which was a thing that was a yeah. thing, yeah. but it totally wasn't because they knew each other for years prior, and uh, as we'll see, a lot of the things Cowdery was into show up in the Book of Mormon. Uh, coincidentally oh yeah so the, so cowdry shows up uh in particular joseph's kind of enamored with him uh and he takes over as scribe for martin harris okay because uh, i think harris is asking too many questions okay and joseph needs somebody who can finish the goddamn book and not ask so many questions about the plates that aren't <laughs> totally aren't a masonry brick with hammered tin mm-hmm. um stop asking me to see these things oh and i I should also mention that it, it, this isn't just speculation because multiple neighbors around the Smith home uh, mm-hmm. pinned Cowdery, uh, Whitmer, and Rigdon, who we'll meet in a few episodes, but three major key players to the beginning of the, the Mormon religion were all pinned uh, by Palmyra residents as being around the Smith residence years before the church started. Okay. So uh, in terms of uh, the Mormons and Drugs podcast, the most important aspect to this discussion it is that shortly after merging with smith and and the magical three we see what could very likely be joe's first successful use of entheogenic agents in a group setting this is utter speculation and there's only three people so it's not the strongest thing uh, like i've said before in a few episodes we'll get to a, a point where he's drugging hundreds of people with sacramental wine uh, cool and this is just three so the you know, three people could have an experience like this, especially when we get to it, how it happens. And they don't mention having taken the sacrament. But okay. within months, they're doing a thing called the Lord's Supper, which is what I think an entheogenic sacrament. So, so this very easily could have been like the prototype, the test round. I think this is Joe's test run okay. to, to see if he can do this in a group. And he starts with three, and then in the next episode we'll get to it, but he starts with three and then repeats the process with another eight men. Okay. So he that slowly kind of yeah. works his way it's up. clever, as, as he is. Uh, and after meeting Cowdery, uh, 
like I kind of mentioned, Smith receives one of those pages from God, and he's and he blesses Cowdery as having the gift of working. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, he blesses Cowdery as having the gift of working with the sprout or divining rod, um, and which was later edited the, by the church to just a rod, and even later eventually termed as the gift of Aaron. Um, while progressively more esoteric ways of saying the exact same thing, mm-hmm. these these all mean the same thing. Cool. So just pointing out one of these wonderful moments I've mentioned where the church deliberately obfuscated the historical connections between Mormonism and the occult. But moving on. Cowdery in this revelation is appointed the new scribe, like I said, not only for his better qualifications professionally and esoterically, but likely because he provided a less questioning and perhaps more unscrupulous partner for Smith's machinations. Ah, okay. He's more qualified was the angle. Mm-hmm. Got it. And just to give you a, a an idea of the kind of guy Cowdery was, this is a quote from a, a Mormon years later. It was a favorite practice of him, meaning Cowdery, when half drunk to preach a Mormon sermon. <laughs> when visited by one of the saints or a stranger, he invariably asserted the truth of his testimony, but among his friends privately admitted that it was all a bottle of smoke. <laughs> a bottle of smoke. I like interesting word choice. Interesting word choice, and it's either to an angel or to someone standing there. So either by himself <laughs> or with someone listening. Either way, drunk. He is going to emit that bottle of smoke. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. So much like Joe, Cowdery's intoxication and religious piety while in public should be taken careful note of. <laughs> there is a, a historian, Christopher Smith, that puts forward a pretty decent argument that Cowdery is actually the one to suggest to Smith about making a new venture into a like profitable religion instead of a, an occultist. But I tend to think this was a more naturally developing long con that okay. Smith had been working on for yeah. some time at this point, and one that his old occult connections like Cowdery and Whitmer simply like amplified and improved. Um, everybody clearly influenced this. So like oh, yeah. Cowdery, Whitmer, uh, they all had their really big influence on the on the birth of this cosmology okay. or this theology. I mean, but like it doesn't seem to be any one thing. It seems to be this kind of synergy between all f- you know like six of these men. Okay. Uh, in fact, the main narrative of the Book of Mormon, uh, being the chronological history of two different groups of displaced Jewish families migrating to America, was the commonly circulated hypothesis of a preacher named Ethan Smith, no relation to Joseph Smith. Thank you for clarifying. Ethan wrote a book called View of the Hebrews in 1823, which put forward the idea that the Americas were inhabited by lost tribes of Israel spoken of in the Bible. Hmm. He regularly preached his theories to his congregations, and wouldn't you know it, the Cowdery family just happened to be members of that church at that time. Really? We'll get back to the contents of the Book of Mormon in a few episodes, but for now, the idea that Joseph had a copy of the view of the Hebrews while translating the Book of Mormon is not only plausible, but highly probable. As Joseph Smith's biographer Fawn Brody wrote in 1902, it may never be proved that Joseph saw a view of the Hebrews before writing the Book of Mormon, but the striking parallelisms between the two books hardly leave a case for mere coincidence. That's so very interesting. Very. Uh, we'll get into it in the contents of the Book of Mormon, but the creation of the Book of Mormon was like, it was a magical act for Smith, and he was 
kind of meshing and amalgamating a bunch of philosophies and trying to answer important Christian questions of the time mm-hmm. in a sort of like 19th century Christian fan fiction. Absolutely. Um, anyway, <laughs> I digress. We'll get into that. Anyway, uh, Cowdery becomes Joseph's new scribe, as I've said like four times now, uh, in April of 1829. And the two power through the translation process. Tired of Smith's nagging and skeptical in-laws, he relocates Emma and his new buddies to the Whit- David Whitmer's farmhouse in early May. The same farmhouse that was within the known proselytization areas of the Ephrata Brotherhood that we talked about last week. Okay. Uh, so he's, he's at the farm that's like within stomping ground of the Ephrata guys. Um, and this is where the rest of the translation takes place. Interesting. Uh, This month proves very exciting, as Lucy Harris, in one of her first attempts to reveal the true character of the Mormon religion, gathers affidavits from the neighborhood regarding Joe's activities and reputations. So she's going around being nosy? Mm -hmm. Oh, this is Lucy Harris. Remember, Martin Harris's wife who hates Joseph at this point. Yes, no, I know, but she's going around being Uh all nosy and spying on him. Well, and collecting affidavits to, like, prove that (laughs) from the get-go that this guy's a con artist and he's conning my husband. I'm a big fan of Lucy. She is a great, (laughs) very, very... Very actively. I, I imagine her just be a little spitfire. <laughs> um, so she presents these affidavits before local officials who, in turn, just kind of ignore them. They're like, yeah, we just just let him. I don't, we don't care. Uh, Wait, who does this? The local officials of uh, the New York area that this oh, is all Oh, so happening. she goes to the officials. Yeah, with all these affidavits she collects from, from Joe's neighbors who oh, were like, hey, wow. Joe's a con artist. Oh, and then, so she was really trying to mm-hmm, stop this. Yes, and she has proof of like <clears throat> the 1826 trial, and she oh. she's like serious about get, stopping Joe before wow. this ever gets off the ground. Okay, I thought she was just, okay. And Go, again, Lucy. I was taught that, you know, Lucy was an agent of Satan and was trying to stop God's... True, true church instead are, of just like a woman trying not to making save me her like her husband. less <laughs> you're not. it's true it, it is a lot more metal <laughs> um so later that month in her, in her little bonnet <laughs> sorry go on uh later that month or perhaps during the exact same time joseph and cowdery alone in the woods apparently see and commune with john the baptist from the bible yeah uh and on another forest excursion, mm. are, are then met by the three biblical apostles, Peter, James, and John. Uh, so many people they visit in the I, Well, <laughs> Joe loved to talk about all of his angelic administration, Yeah, uh, but he, in the church version of things, mm-hmm. these men who are resurrected beings uh-huh. show up to bestow priesthood authority to the earth that had been allegedly lost since the time of Christ. Like... God's true church was set up right before he, uh, Christ left the second time. He said he'd come back. Uh, people got tired of waiting. The Christian, like, canonized Bible shows up, and we get, like, the Christian or the uh, Catholic faith that okay. goes off in, like, the 1500s. You get the Protestantism. Everything splinters off into a bunch of sects, and that's where it, we're at it now. It's all messed up. According yeah. According so, to him. Joe's version of this is that these events with these like biblical characters mm-hmm. were restoring um, an apostolic version of the church. Got it. Okay. He's... Despite the fact that they were living with the Whitmers at this time, and, and again, more than happy to tell anyone with ears all about all the angels and gods they saw, it strikes me as strange that none of the Whitmer family ever backed up this claim and actually the retcon helped to push some of them out of the church afterwards because... 
we'll get to it. But Joe needed to make, uh, people started asking him like, Hey, where do you get the authority to like give people priesthood and stuff? And yeah. he retconned this and like, Oh, yeah, like years ago, the apostles, the resurrected apostles came and gave me and Cowdery, me and Cowdery got it. Yeah. And we didn't tell you at the time. Cause we just, I, we okay. forgot. <laughs> and a bunch of the Whitmers who were living with Joe, who knew Joe and Cowdery and like would have said something if that happened or just like, um, you said what? <laughs> and then they, they kept doubling down on it. And a bunch of the Whitmers were like, yeah, I don't, I don't think that happened actually. And this is, that was their moment of like, I think you might be a hundred percent full of shit. <laughs> so anyway. Okay. So that's another thing that he went back and changed. <laughs> yes. Got this it. is so during this time that allegedly happened, but he didn't come up with that story until like later down four or yeah. five years later. That's a, that's a fave thing of his to do. Uh, yes. So I'm just mentioning those retcons as they happen. Although mm-hmm. they clearly, and this date kind of jumps around too. So I'll mention this event happening again because <laughs> he kind of because okay. he's a little flippy floppy on when it <laughs> happened exactly. Okay. So on the Whitmore farm, there stood uh, one solitary, very modest two-story home, one that was occupied by the entire Whitmer family, immediate and extended. So like cousins and stuff were living there too. Joseph and Emma Smith as well, Cowdery, and occasionally Martin Harris as well. So these. The small upper floor uh, loft of the house was used for the translation process. And so for the next several months, a rather large group of people shared the bottom floor of oh, one Pennsylvania yeah. farmhouse. You talked about this. Grandma was getting sick of it. Yeah. And then grandma got to see the books. Yep. Or she got to touch and fondle. Oh, I'm going to give you those accounts now. Yeah. So as as such, some uh, eventually noticed some odd goings on during the translation process. One, Sally Heller Conrad Bunnell, who was living at the Whitmer farmhouse during the translation process, gave the following account to a journalist towards the end of her life. Hmm. And this is from the journalist interviewing her. Okay. Quote, I conversed with one lady, 80 years old, who lived with David Whitmer when Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery were translating the Book of Mormon in the upper room of the house. And she, only a girl, saw them come down from the translating room several times. When they looked so exceedingly white and strange that she inquired of Miss Whitmer the cause of their unusual appearance. But Miss Whitmer was unwilling to tell the hired girl the true cause as it was a sacred holy event connected with a holy sacred work which was opposed and persecuted by nearly everyone who heard of it. Hmm. The girl finally told Miss Whitmer that she would not stay in the house unless she knew the cause of the strange looks of these men. Sister Whitmer then told her what the men were doing in the room above. This satisfied the girl and opened the way to embracing the gospel. She is the mother of Stephen Bunnell of Provo and the Bunnell family of Provo. So she became a member of the church eventually. And, uh, of the Mormon church? Uh-huh, and followed them to Utah. So she stayed the rest of her life. But the fact that when they what came down she... from translating, they were white as sheets and sweaty and probably dilated pupils. <laughs> um, but... This kind of thing where Joseph comes out of translation or revelation and people see him swooning and like white as a sheet. And this is very typical of like high dose entheogenic administration again. It would be one thing if it was just Joseph that does this. Yeah. He repeatedly does it with his scribe and both men come out super crazy. And actually a few years later when we meet this guy Rigdon, he's translating with Rigdon 
and Rigdon like collapses on the floor and Joseph kind of jokingly is like, he's not as used to revelating as I am. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so oh while ambiguous, if you look at these in the right perspective, yeah. he's, it's pretty clear someone's taking something during the translation process. That's very, very interesting. And of course she has no idea of those possibilities yeah. so it looks and it would be legit. It, it would be its own thing if it was just this one uh account mm-hmm. but it's not like i said there's like i have a few like a half a dozen accounts like this of him coming out of revelation are like you gonna this. are those gonna come up yep i'll time? keep okay. i'll keep hitting <laughs> while the account took place years after the fact it's obvious that the event stood out as a noteworthy event in her life which remained with her through her life with the lds church This account was not in an attempt to disparage the Book of Mormon or the translation, but rather to give her own frank account of the events as she remembered them. Her her descriptions of Joe being white and strange while in a state of revelation, again, is like a motif that we'll keep hitting. But the fact that she was like a a pro-Mormon source who wasn't trying to disparage... A lot of the times this gets into semantic battles of anti-Mormon versus pro-Mormon. This was a pro-Mormon source that was just giving her own account, and she didn't... not in any kind of negative way. So very highly valued source for me personally, because it's pro-Mormon. Being within such close proximity to the Ephrata cloister, like we've been talking about, it has also been suggested that members of the cult may have inspired or even assisted Joseph Smith during the translation as well. It's certainly worth considering that many of the monks within the Brotherhood of Zion hailed from an area just outside of Belgium where another cloister was located next to the Hill Mormont. I kind of covered this last week. Mm -hmm. Oh, Mormont. And they landed in the Lehigh Valley and like a lot of the aspects, again, the aspects of the Book of Mormon emerging are kind of paralleled or you can correlate them to the monks in Ephrata. So just, just tying that in from last week. And I had mentioned this in last week's episode, but I'm going to reiterate it because people keep seeing him. It seems that this angelic character of Nephi or Moroni, again, flip-flopped in the early years, uh, whoever allegedly concealed or later revealed the gold plates to Joseph was that, in fact, a real flesh-and-blood person who was sometimes spotted around the Whitmer home during the translation process. Uh, This man was witnessed several times by members of the Whitmer family, and... I think I, I gave the Did account they? last week where he, they're like traveling on the road. Mm-hmm. No, I think. Did you? Did they all specify that he had a white robe, or that was just something that the he should he Joseph has monks. a prop angel show up in a white robe at some point. Okay, in the next and you episode. were and yes. you did say that they have robes, white and, robes in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their white robes closely resemble the original design for temple garments that are now known as like the magic underwear that Mormons wear in the Mormon church. But what's yes. the other? What's the? Uh, never mind. I'll cut this all out. Fuck it. Okay, so you were just about to say they've seen someone. Um. I'll just, I'll skip over that because I I covered most of it last week, but this is like right after they show up and the translation process is happening is when people start seeing Nephi slash Moroni as a real flesh and blood white (laughs) guy. Well, you're speculating that it's this, that that's Nephi slash Moroni, but it's this old white man who starts coming around the, 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 the the Whitmore Whitmore house. And he he apparently hangs out around the barn. 
and nobody knows him, and Joseph identifies him to at least David Whitmer as being Moroni. Oh, okay. So he just straight up is mm-hmm. like, this is Moroni. Mm-hmm. Cool. And to, again, to convolute things, Mary Whitmer, the grandma who saw him in the barn, uh, identified him as Nephi. So this whole like Nephi-Moroni confusion persists during the translation process, but there's some old white guy <laughs> hanging around the Whitmer barn that has Joseph's prop plates and is working with or around him. Okay. So unspoken part of the Book of Mormon, Mormons hear this and they're just like, oh, that was Moroni. But when you contextualize the whole story and you realize what Joseph was actually doing, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, this was clearly, I mean, <laughs> clearly he wasn't a resurrected white Native American. <laughs> uh, he was something else. I think the Ephrata cloister just a stone's throw away. Okay. So on June 11th of 1829, with the new manuscript nearing completion, Joe and Cowdery do the whole translation process in just under three months. Like, for, and for a book that's 500 pages, that's it's a, it's a clip. Um, it is. Harris Joe, is funding all of this. <laughs> well, the Whitmers are housing them too. Right. So like there's the, Joe's not <laughs> having to spend any money. That's all we need to, okay. Joe's got enough people supporting him and Emma that okay. he doesn't have to worry about anything but doing his magic stuff. Okay. So uh, again, on June 11th, 1829, uh, with the manuscript nearing completion, Joe applies for a copyright of the Book of Mormon. Uh, there are only a few publishers in the Palmyra, Manchester area, many of whom are not surprisingly unwilling to publish the Joe's newly uh, retitled Gold Bible. Local uh, publisher E.B. Grandin agrees to publish the title page of the Book of Mormon in his newspaper, The Wayne Sentinel. And this is just to like satisfy copyright. Uh, like Joseph had to publish this uh, publicly to get the copyright finished. Okay. Um, and the, so he didn't agree to publish the book yet. He was just like, I'll publish your title page so your copyright's legit. Mm-hmm. And we'll get back to Grandin, but just remember this guy for now. It is during or very shortly after this time that Joe uses his little Bluetooth to God and produces the following revelation with head and hat, I should mention. His Please. Like, yeah. Please do. And, uh, Oliver, this time acting as scribe. Behold, I, I'm, I'm speaking in Joe's God voice yeah. again. Okay. Behold, I say unto you that you must rely upon my word, which is if you do. This, yeah, his so bad it's very difficult to even read so go ahead (laughs) behold i say unto you that you must rely upon my word which if you do with full promise of heart you shall have a view of the plates and also of the breastplate the sword of laban the urim and thummim and the miraculous directors which were given to lehi while in the wilderness this little like magic compass that works on faith that's what the directors are (laughs) even by that faith which was had by prophets of old And after you have obtained faith and have seen them with your eyes, you shall testify of them by the power of God. And this you shall do, that my servant, Joseph Smith Jr., may not be destroyed, (laughs) that I may bring about my righteous purposes unto the children of men in his work. And ye shall testify that you have seen them, even as my servant, Joseph Smith Jr., has seen them. For it is by my power that he has seen them, and it is because he had faith. He has translated a book even that part which I have commanded him. As your Lord God liveth, it is true. Wherefore, you have received the same power and the same faith and the same gift like unto him. 
And if you do these last commandments of mine, which I have given you, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you, for my grace is sufficient for you, and you shall be lifted up in the last day. And I, Jesus Christ, your Lord, and your God have spoken it unto you, and that I might bring about my righteous purposes unto the children of men. Amen. Amen. Sorry. <laughs> I get all worked up I do when, too. I, when I read his <laughs> Joseph God voice. Um, I like how he makes sure that he's definitely... I like how he reiterates, yeah. This is Jesus talking, totally not me. I know it's my voice, but it's totally Jesus. But but definitely approved Joseph Joseph Smith Jr. And a lot of people uh <laughs> will get into it in the Book of Mormon content episodes, but everyone like Joseph couldn't have written this. He was a simple country bumpkin. It's funny to me that the Book of Mormon was not was not translated in ver- a vernacular 19th century English. It was translated in a 17th century vernacular which coincidentally is the same as the King James Bible, which Joseph learned to read off of, and which is also the same as his God-prophet voice. So there's a really striking continuity between Joseph's revelations and his translation, all of which are in a 17th century King James Version vernacular. That's clever. It's very clever because it sounds Bible-y to people at the time, but looking back, it's just like, God, (laughs) did any of you... Can any of you think critically right now? (laughs) Sorry, I keep adding my own little editorials. It's okay. I just keep seeing that squirrel eating all my bird seed, and I'm getting mad. So this this new commandment uh, was actually a common practice for people creating a new religion at the time, or by those making miraculous or visionary claims of a religious nature. Publishers would often include multiple witness testimonies in the front of their publication, and this was done in order to give the account a certain like legal legitimacy by associating it with reliable witness testimonies. Okay. The Shakers, who share a lot of similarities to Mormonism and were in the same area as them when they started, mm-hmm. uh, were a part of the Burned Over District's uh, religious revivals, and they published similar documents attesting to the truthfulness of like certain visionary experiences. Uh, separate, though, not... Separate, though. I'm okay. just like, jo- this. although this revelation occurred at this yeah. point, mm-hmm. Joseph knew about groups that were doing stuff like this right. in order to legitimize their it's, claims. It's just a part of the procedure. Yeah, and it's a good idea and concept. Uh, it was actually a pretty decent marketing move on Joe's part, but like as we'll see... He couldn't help but give this uh, give these witnesses the old Joe pivot. On June 26th, almost a month later, E.B. Grandin does publish the title page of the Book of Mormon in his paper, The Wayne Sentinel. But as he's a longtime Palmyra resident, he doesn't like Joe. (laughs) And as an educated and sober man that has watched Joe's antics for the last few years, he can't help but publish it with the following introduction. Oh, oh, yes. Oh, it's good. Quote, just about in this particular region for some time past, much speculation has existed concerning a pretended discovery through superhuman means of an ancient record of a religious and divine nature and origin written in ancient characters, impossible to be interpreted by any whom the special gift has not been imparted by inspiration. It is generally known and spoken of as the Gold Bible. Most people entertain an idea that the whole matter is the result of a gross imposition and a grosser superstition. It is pretended that it will be published as soon as the translation is completed. Meanwhile, 
So he's saying it's pretended that they're going to publish this bullshit. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. It's uh, very clear. I, meanwhile, we have been furnished with the following, which is represented <laughs> to us as intended for the title page of the work. We give it as a curiosity. Oh, my God. It's such gosh. a fucking like backhanded oh, sh- I don't even, shade thrown. I wouldn't mo- even say it's backhanded. It is pretty blunt. Like, <laughs> I, I love how like just he's kind of blase fair about it. He's just like, God, this fucking yeah. idiot kid. Yeah. We all know who he is. Here it is, guys. Here it is, guys. He's still doing it. <laughs> cool. Real cool, guys. <laughs> so, I'm guessing he had to pay to publish it. Like have like so he's just like, all right, fine, I'll take your yeah. bloody money. Well, and again, I think it kind of speaks to the the residents being like, God, just Nobody's yeah. stopping. Oh, we all it, know. I'm sh- yeah, it, it's all just as ridiculous. Let's just see how far this goes. It's going to sell some papers. Let's see how far this goes. <laughs> um, Joe, however, couldn't let his new con pick up on this reputation <laughs> before it got its wings off the ground. So two days after the publication of, of his title page, Joe somehow decides that it's a good time to deliver on his promises about finally seeing those plates. Okay, so he gets upset that everyone is just like clearly thinks <laughs> he, it's a joke and so he's like no no, no I'm it's, gonna, it's totally double for down, real double down yeah and so on june 28th two days after again this is not contextualized to mormon oh, june 28th i thought it was june 11th oh june 11th was when he gave him mm-hmm. and on stuff. june okay. 26th is when it's published okay june 28th is when joe gets hey we gotta go do that now okay again none of this is contextualized in mormon history but when you put it in chronologically yeah. you're like oh huh, huh this is it's funny how God does work in mysterious ways. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, on June 28th, Joe gathers David Whitmer and Oliver Cowdery and Martin Harris to meet in the woods near uh, the farm of Peter Whitmer. And if you're thinking that Joe is about to physically show these men anything convincing, he isn't. <laughs> uh, no, I, that didn't. No, okay. that didn't. Just wanted to make sure. Um, as we'll see from these men's own testimonies later on uh, this was in fact a visionary experience seen only with their quote spiritual eyes mm-hmm. joe himself said that the men gathering in the woods nearby peter whitmer's farm prayed on two occasions for some time before martin harris feeling himself like the odd man out and assuming that fail the failure to see golden plates was his fault kind of retreats further into the woods leaving just cowdry whitmer and joseph together convenient uh all of the guys that are probably in on this together mm-hmm. uh and so coincidentally david whitmer and oliver cowdery join smith once more in prayer and that magical third time are bestowed a vision that they desired from one reporter who interviewed uh, david whitmer sometime later quote repairing to the woods they engaged in prayer for a short time when suddenly with a great light shone round about them far brighter and more dazzling than the brilliance of noonday sun seemingly enveloping the wood for a considerable distance a spirit of evelation seized him as a joy indescribable and a strange influence stole over him so entranced him that he felt he was chained to the spot a moment later a divine personage clothed in white raiment appeared unto them in another interview david whitmer continued with quote, between us and the angel there appeared a table there lay upon it the sword of laban uh, the ball and directors, those like magic compass things, the record, meaning the, the gold plates, and the interpreters, the magic spectacles. 
The angel took the record and turned the leaves for us, showing it to us by the power of God. Showing it to us by the power of God. They were taken away by the angel to a cave, which we saw by the power of God while we were yet in the spirit. Mm -hmm. So they watched this angel in a state of vision fly off to a nearby hill and deposit the record inside mm -hmm. a magical hill vault, mm -hmm. which as we'll see is a another like Mormon thing that apparently there's all these like mystically sealed hill vaults lying around the New York area, mm -hmm. um, which is really just Joe's <laughs> money digging bullshit. <laughs> Um, but anyway, Joseph in his own history, uh, concluded the account with quote, I now left David and Oliver and went in pursuit of Martin Harris, whom I found at a considerable distance, fervently engaged in prayer. He soon told me, however, that he had not yet prevailed with the Lord and earnestly requested me to join him in prayer that he might also realize the same blessings, which we had just received. We accordingly joined in prayer and ultimately obtained our desires, for before we had yet finished, the same vision was open to our view. At least it was again open to me, and I once more beheld the same things. And uh, so, the, again, Joe's really clever at how he words things, um, yeah. and this is another thing that will pop up where he's like, we all saw these things. Well, at least I did. Or he'll say, like, this guy... This guy experienced this instead of saying, I saw him. There's like a scene where he performs an exorcism uh -huh. and the guy f feels himself floating up to this, the ceiling like Mary Poppins. And uh, and Joseph s says that he experienced that. But he like prior to that, all this exorcism stuff, he was like, I was in the room and I saw him do this. And then the last tail end thing, he's just like, oh, and he said he floated up into the rafters. It's just kind of Joe, Joe's really clever about how he words subjective mm -hmm. experiences yes. versus like group hallucinations, which is why I focus on those. Anyway, um, finishing up. So at the same time, Joseph's having another vision of the plates. Whilst at the same moment, Martin Harris cried out, apparently in an ecstasy of joy, quote, "'Tis enough, tis enough, mine eyes have beheld, mine eyes have beheld." And jumping up, he shouted, "'Hosanna, blessing God and otherwise.'" Rejoiced exceedingly. Huh. Reminds me of Pank. Aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> I was hoping you'd remember that. It does sound a lot like Pank. It's a little Panky um, going on there. So we'll break this down. But yeah, note, note Harris's similar reaction to a visionary religious experience. Uh, similar in tone and language to Walter Pink. Just a coincidence that in itself denotes nothing. But the similarity is striking enough to take note of. Um, in any regard... The very directed experience closely follows the checklist for initiating entheogenic experiences highlighted in uh, my tent that those psychedelic episodes we did. Mm -hmm. uh, these three men had been psychologically primed by Smith for some time, like months at that time, and confidants are no, whether they were in on it or no. Right. They were directed into seeing a specific vision, and they were in a supportive group of religious visionaries directed by a talented and seemingly well-educated occultist and mesmerist. Mm -hmm. Additionally, they were also in an environment conducive to having a religious experience. The woods are a great place. And that is precisely what each of them intended to do. So you got like dose, set, setting, sitters. You got all that, all that checked off. With the addition of a properly administered dose, this is most <laughs> easily explained as a choreographed entheogenic session. Yeah. And the fact that he repeats it later is... <laughs> It's very weird. Um, as 
Um, I have to take a small detour and note that the modern Mormons are sold a very toned-down, whitewashed version of this history, wherein all three men are simultaneously bestowed a physical manifestation of said items. Like an angel physically shows up, shows them this, they touch it, they feel it, they're like, oh, those are real, and Joseph is a prophet. And there's even, there's like beautiful, very expensive oil paintings that they put in the churches of like three men in nice clothes and looking at a stump and they're like, oh, yes, those are plates. But this is pure propaganda <laughs> as, as this experience by the three men's own accounts, as we're about to get to, was reported as a purely visionary or spiritual experience, or in other words, just a hallucination. Harris very unambiguously would later state, quote, while praying, I passed into a state of entrancement, and in that state, I saw the angels and the plates, unquote. He additionally made mention uh, to receiving a purely visionary experience when he also stated that, quote, I saw them with an eye of faith. In his seminal work, uh, Joseph Smith, The Making of a Prophet, historian Dan Vogel explored this idea further with, quote, Mr. David Whitmer Sr. did not handle the plates, only saw them. Says he did see them, and the angel heard him speak, but that it was indescribable, and that it was through the power of God. He then spoke of Paul hearing and seeing Christ, uh, but that his associates did not, because it was only seen in spirit. This is a scene in the Bible where one of Christ's apostles like has a vision of Christ, but no one around him does. Uh, and he's likening it to that. Uh, so... Purely subjective, (laughs) visionary experience. Um, Moyle, a a recent law student graduate, noted his disappointment over the quality of evidence. Quote, I was not fully satisfied with the explanation. It was more spiritual than I anticipated. So this was a member who was interviewing him and who was shocked to be like, that was, you guys made it sound like it was a thing that really happened. Yeah. He attempted to ascertain whether the angel's appearance could be considered an objective event or if it was only experienced inwardly. Quote, I asked if the atmosphere about them was normal. In other words, did the angel appear within the normal surroundings or did the vision entirely obscure the natural world? According to Whitmer, quote, it was indescribable, but the light was bright and clear, yet apparently of a different kind, something like a soft haze. Despite the naturalistic wording of the printed testimony, Whitmer's candid personal account described what might be called a waking dream, unquote. Which is a lot like how they described yep. LSD, mm-hmm. but this couldn't be LSD. So, no, but, but um, it's a... But a, the, the experience of kind of psychedelic intoxication yes, right. is very similar. Yeah, no, they um, are. So all... it could have been a host of things that mm-hmm. made that happen. Okay. Dan Vogel, who I was just quoting, along with many other Mormon scholars, have very reasonably come to the conclusion, based on firsthand testimonies, that Smith, considering his skill set and former occupation, orchestrated a synchronized hallucination. Right. However, they all fail to consider entheogenic agents as a potential catalyst for this event. Right. A practice used in Ephrata, and later openly employed by the Mormons for a short time after this period, the Lord's Supper, as I've mentioned a few times was a common precursor to visionary experiences in the church. Uh, An opening sacrament ritual, the Lord's Supper, uh, consisted of what Mormon Charles Walker later described as, quote, namely a piece of bread as big as your double fist and half a pint of wine in the temple. Uh, And this was taken on an empty stomach, Mm -hmm. much like uh, anthrogens. Charles, highlighting the unambiguous side effects of one pint of wine, continued curiously with, quote, 
I was there and saw the Holy Ghost descend upon the heads of those present like cloven tongues of fire. Cloven tongues of fire. Yeah. I should mention that uh, alcohol-based hallucinations are only generally experienced in the very late stages of alcoholism, like cirrhosis and liver failure level alcoholism, and are also generally auditory in nature. Uh, And so this simply does not account for the Lord's Supper unless the pint of wine were laced with an entheogenic agent. While current speculation, this first choreographed and prophesied visionary experience under the direction of Smith is worth considering as his first successful entheogenic session in a group setting. They may not have mentioned the Lord's Supper or a sacrament, but it's very likely, especially if two of them were in on it, that they just didn't seem means. It sounds very similar to explanations of psilocybin mm-hmm. and mescaline well again these <laughs> men with this type of inclination didn't care what brought them into a religiously visionary state or they were just, just completely oblivious they... or to it uh, well and there's we'll see this as in the early days of the church but there's kind of okay do you want to bring us back we had to take a quick bathroom break <laughs> You had to take a bathroom break. <laughs> it was me. Yeah, I had to quit. I had to, I had to pee. <laughs> I am a weak bladdered uh, individual. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, these. Um, where was I? Um, we'll see it in a f- like later when the church starts. But there's this kind of split down the middle when they're first using entheogens in the open, um, where there's people who clearly know what's going on and don't care because they're Mormon. They stay Mormon even after they openly talk about what they saw going on. And then there's another group that was like, hey, I didn't know I didn't know that's why I saw that. And then they get upset and they leave. Okay. Um, so is the first half kind of more in for the community? You, or uh, we'll we'll get in, we'll get into it later, but like okay. but for now, Cowdery and Whitmer and Harris are clearly in that first group. Like, okay. even if they do know or don't know, they don't care. Okay. They just, they just know Joseph can get me to see this. Okay. So that, like, even if they're in on it or not. Right. They this still is, believe is, in Joseph's abilities. Yeah, this is, this is a really amazing experience and I'm going to ride with it, which I can, I can understand that. Yeah. I, I mean, if you take all the conmanship out of it. <laughs> yes, exactly. The idea that yeah. he can deliver this experience is what's important. To yeah, him. is to, to them. Um. So I think because of this, um, even though a lot of people would say, you know, they didn't explicitly talk about a sacrament in this setting, I do think it's possible that it did happen nonetheless. And historians must at least begin to take into account the explanatory power that this holds for an event that they themselves admit is a hallucination. Yeah. Um, The statistical reliability of these contemporarily accessible chemicals Again, some 90 to 100% effective under proper circumstances, as this clearly was, and mm-hmm. as we've highlighted in the psychedelic episodes, um, these are really effective at initiating religious experiences of visionary proportions with lifelong lasting effects. And this is just a really powerful explanation, uh, given that these same men will in just less than a year be participating in and directing visionary conversions to Mormonism, following an administration of food, drink, and at times smoke, this experience of the three witnesses must be considered as a similar conversion, or at least just consider the possibility. Yeah, yeah. 
Furthermore, if one will go back and listen to the Science of Psychedelics episodes that I, I have mentioned and review both checklists I covered, I think, in the second part, then again, I think you'll see that the three witnesses and the events I just described, they'll hit the mark on just about every point. We still have a lot. I got to talk about eight more witnesses. So we'll just end it here or I'm going to keep ranting. (laughs) Um, Yeah. That's a good stopping point. Yeah. Check us out on the the Instagrams. Yes. We are at Mormons and Drugs Podcast, all one word, on Instagram. Uh, The website is mormonsanddrugs.com, all one word, um, and is spelled out. And we also have a Twitter account, which is Mormons underscore drugs, which maybe someday will probably not, though. probably not. But like maybe by the point, by the time somebody listens to this, maybe we'll <laughs> do it. Who knows? Maybe. You never know. Also Mormons and drugs at gmail.com. If you'd like to email any inquiries. Hate mail. Hate mail. Yeah. If you yeah. want. Cody will read that. I don't probably know. not. No, okay. probably not. Well, uh, and if we're helping anyone or if you have any further questions, uh, you know, go for it. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Thanks, listener. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>